G'day. I'm going to read uh, John 21 today. Uh, I think it needs a bit of context because it starts with the word afterward. <laughs> uh, Jesus appears to his disciples. That happened just before that. So he was just resurrected. <sighs> afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you, had, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from, the sh from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, that is, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Um, uh, please bow your heads in prayer. I'm going to pray for Jeff. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us Jeff. and Thank you that um, he's prepared a sermon tonight. And I pray that you'll give him... Um, give him your love and show him which words to say, the right ones, and let him speak from your heart and not his own. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a a wee bit of trivia as I come tonight, and I want to especially thank... Am I audio? Am I right? All good? Um, just a bit of trivia and a big bit of a thanks to Luke for the choice of um, uh, the opening hymn tonight, uh, How Great Thou Art. This is my... Uh, have I done something to the... Is that better? There we go. My loyal servants will now give me. <laughs> ah, yes. Gia, is the right thingy? Ryan thingy? Sorry. <laughs> what do I do with this? <laughs> yeah, just a uh, convivial little bit of trivia while I, um, uh, I can gather my thoughts. <laughs> uh, there, that opening hymn. Uh, is uh, pretty significant for me because it's um, it takes me back to a particular Billy Graham crusade in Melbourne and around Australia. Do you realise that crusade in 1959 was the last uh, spiritual revival this country had? And oh, that we'd have another one such as that. And I don't just mean that a lot of people rolled up to a lot of meetings, although you know that particular event. Uh, still holds the record for the largest number of people in any crowd in Australia at the MCG, 144,000. But do you realise that through his preaching, one in four Australians went to hear him? Is that astonishing or something else? And of those who went, one in four gave their lives to Christ. We owe a lot to that in terms of the very fabric of our society. May it happen again. And now, <laughs> let's see. Well done. There we go. That's good. 
But now we, we turn to John and maybe what I've just said has some relevance to this because this is a remarkable passage. I've uh, <clears throat> enjoyed coming out to a fresh. I've preached on this passage on its own but in having to discipline myself to join it to a series on John it's made me rethink what is really happening here. <clears throat> it's remarkable, is it not, that we finish the previous chapter with what looks like the perfect ending to the Gospel of Signs. In John 20 and 30, we read, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Isn't that amazing? So that would have been a good ending, that there's sufficient data here for people to move from death to life eternally. But John's not satisfied with simply that, though that's the major reason why he wrote the book. And he then presses on with this, this peculiar story about some of his friends going fishing and then having a barbecue. It's not exactly how I'd finish the epochal gospel, but... Uh, John decided it was important, for, the Lord must have decided it was important for him to do that. I remember as a little fella, um, when I went to school, we didn't have TV and uh, I was always on the outer of conversations. I didn't know who Zorro was or Lassie, let alone McCall's Navy and all the, the others. And then I remember the day that uh, we bought our first television set and uh, I was very uh, importunate with my father that he shouldn't buy a set that couldn't pick up Rin Tin Tin uh, which was a kids program about a dog and uh, sure enough uh, our TV picked that up and a lot of other shows but something I remember about television as a, as a young kid was uh, Australian television was flooded with American sitcoms and adventure shows all in black and white everything was in black and white those days and uh, I can still remember that it was such a common practice that they would finish the chase scene and the resolution of the plot uh, and probably go to a, a commercial break and then come back and you'd have this little bit tacked on the end where something all Tarzan and all his friends or Jungle Jim or Mikhail's Navy or Mikhail would be all around with his crew and, and then... The, the dumb little kid would do something goofy, he'd take something literally, or the monkey would run away with the bathing suit and everyone would go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, And uh, then they'd make sure that you're going to see them again next week and, uh, you know, who could wait? <clears throat> but that was uh, totally wasted. You didn't really need that. It was just sort of a genre that uh, Americans liked and we were inflicted with. And... Uh, there, there it was. But John is doing the same thing here. He's, he's really tied up all the ends, hasn't he? And the Lord has won his incredible victory over death. And in the first week of post-resurrection, there are some uh, sequence, sequence of uh, appearances. And now we don't know how long this is, but maybe a week or two later, uh, he appears again. You know that because you've just heard the story read to you. But these people didn't know that. And so in this interim period, we have Peter. There is something 
agitating Peter. He's an agitated state. <clears throat> he knows the Lord is talking about going away. He knows that there is a promise of the Spirit coming. He doesn't know when. But Peter wants to get on with business. He's a, an extroverted activist type of personality. That's the sort of guy he is. And, and having to sit and wait is just not part of his personality. And so suddenly Peter, though he, he is footloose, he's got this sense of a burr in his saddle that just can't be uh, uh, affected by anything that he does. But he thinks about going fishing. And so he decides to head off and he says, I'm going fishing, basically, who's coming? And six of them head off to go night fishing, which is the best time to go fishing. And uh, he would have done that hundreds of times. We just see them go out and disappear into the dark. There wouldn't have been any lights out in the lake except anything that they took. And they just tack around all night and this lake is just seemingly empty of fish it's as if they've all gone in in service and it's a ghost town for fish and uh, there's nothing there to be caught and come morning they're just trying their last few strains of tacking and going about and moving into the wind and away from the and there's nothing because there's hardly any wind anyway and as the soft hues of morning are just starting to to become visible, they notice maybe 100 yards away, 100 metres away, uh, there's a figure on the beach next door to some glowing coals. And they don't know who that figure is, but the figure yells out to them, uh, basically he, he says, lads, you didn't catch anything, did you? And they say, no. He says, well, cast your net out on the right side of the boat. And they think, can't hurt. So they do it. All of a sudden, there's a kerfuffle and a splashing of water and a, a great school of fish seems to be compulsively leaping into their net. They haven't had a catch like this in living memory and they've got real trouble getting that net aboard. They can't get it aboard. They have to start moving towards the shore with these fish and this is a, a, the sort of boat that has a very minimal keel so it can run right into shore. And the danger is they're going to lose the lot. And so uh, right then, the penny drops with the writer who doesn't declare himself. It's John. It's the one who leant against Jesus at the Last Supper and uh, heard the betrayal happening before his very ears. And he, uh, he suddenly remembers and he says... Um, it's the Lord. I mean, they should have known, shouldn't they? And he's basically saying, look, it's deja vu all over again. I mean, we should have known. This, this happened in Luke 5 when we are called. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we'd done the same thing. Hadn't caught a thing all night. And he said, put out your nets. And we did. And this is what happened. It's the Lord. And hearing that, Peter, strange thing to do, but a deliberate little detail John adds Peter can't wait for the others and he gowns up and leaps into the water and swims ashore now I don't know about you but when I say to Kay I'm going for a swim she doesn't say well take your dressing gown 
you know, you don't, you don't get up to go for a swim. You, he could have just gone as he was. But he, he covers up. And he heads into seeing his mate Jesus. And at the shore, suddenly, the, the craft comes in with this load of flipping fishes and uh, uh, Peter has to go and help. It's just impossible to deal with that sort of volume and it's back-breaking work. And they finally probably threw a lot of the fish ashore and uh, John, in his typical way, notices that there are 153 of them, which doesn't stand for anything. It's not the number of countries in the United Nations. It's, it's not code for Vladimir Putin. It's uh, so one and five is six and three sixes. Uh, you know, who knows? But it's just 153 fish. He remembers. He remembers counting them. And uh, that's the nature of it. But you see, the Lord doesn't want them to just have a spiritual experience. He is giving these people something which they will remember him for forever. And with that, they'll remember these principles of discipleship, of service. He takes them firstly back to square one. The first lesson he taught them is a lasting lesson. The object lesson, the first object lesson is simply this, that obedience precedes fruitfulness. And you've been on a long haul, fellas. We've covered a lot of territory. We've crossed the bridges and there's been a lot of water under that bridge and a few other things along the way. But this lesson stays that obedience precedes fruitfulness. In other words, you will never graduate beyond obedience for fruitfulness. You never become self-sufficient. You never can just rely on your own clevers. If you want to do something that's really going to last in eternity, then you've got to be obedient. That's the condition of God blessing your service in life. Well, the disciples must have been famished that night after a night out there on the lake exerting themselves for no effort. And the, uh, the meal that the Lord had prepared, he must have been there at least an hour to get those coals burning. And uh, he obviously has orchestrated this whole thing. It's quite deliberate. And after they've had breakfast and they're sort of cleaning up, uh, Peter, the Lord catches Peter's eye and nudges that they should go for a stroll down the beach. And they're walking along and the Lord just out of left field makes a statement which in effect is a question. He says, um, okay Pete, so you love me more than these? Now, I don't know if Peter caught on straight away, but I'll be surprised if he didn't because the last meal he had with Jesus was the last supper before his death and that long period of dialogue and teaching. You love me more than these, he says. And Jesus is revisiting that scene when he promised two things, that he is about to be arrested and killed and that Peter blurts out with, yes, but I will be truthful. If, even if they deny you, I'll follow you to my death. I'm not like them. <laughs> you can count on me. And right that moment, the Lord eyeballs him and says, Peter, 
telling you what, before the end of this night, you will have denied me. Before a cock crows, you will deny me. And so the Lord says again, second time, uh, he says, so do you love me? And Peter is affronted, but he says, of course I do, I love you. And uh, every time Peter answers, the Lord comes straight back, have you noticed? He, he says, well, feed my sheep. <laughs> Funny thing to say. Feed my lambs, feed my flock, feed my sheep. It's all synonymous. And, and Peter, again, the Lord pauses and he says, sort of like a, you know, the irritating uncle at Christmas, he, he says, do you love me? Peter is getting jolly irritated by this and then he realises a couple of weeks back and he remembers being asked three a question three times. He remembers the night the Lord was arrested, taken to the high priest's palace and it was all open before the public and people gathered and Peter snuck in in the shadows and was warming himself by the fire and he wanted to be inconspicuous. And a maid asked him, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of his. Peter thought, oh, little white lie, I'll just <laughs> deal with this. No, 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 you got it wrong, wrong person. Anyway, the interrogation is going on and Jesus is getting slapped around by the high priest and, and Peter must have gasped and, and they said, you are one of his. <laughs> Your gasping betrays you. And Peter gets a little bit hot under the collar and says he denies it. And, uh, and then a fellow who just happened to be at the arrest, whose cousin or some relative had his ear lopped off by Peter, and you don't forget something like that in an hour he recognises Peter and he says, you're the one who was there. I know who you are. And Peter gets ropeable. He's run out of rope actually and he starts cursing and he denies it vehemently and in the heat of his denial, a cock crows. Peter turns to his Lord and the Lord eyeballs him. And he sees the Lord's disappointment. And now, the same Lord asks him three questions and he sees the same eyeball. Why does the Lord put Peter through such excruciating embarrassment? It's to bring out this simple statement from Peter it's to break down his confident composure and Peter says well Lord you know you know everything he doesn't just mean he has an encyclopedic knowledge of everything he means you know all that wears going down here you know that my practice does not match my profession you know the games I play you know how superficial I really am. You know the charade of my spirituality and all the diversionary tactics I use to keep you at distance. Hey, but if you, if you know that about me, you also know that crazily I do love you. 
You know that too. So where to from here? Where do you go when you're a schmuck? When you're a nothing? Every time that Peter comes to answer that question and to affirm his love, the Lord deliberately, immediately reinstates him in his pastoral role. Feed my sheep. That's the role uh, of every pastor, of every flock. Every time the Lord immediately answers, there's no delay, there's no probation period, it's feed my sheep. But you see, this is telling us something, that role restoration is easy, but soul restoration, now that's another thing entirely. It's a much more critical, delicate surgery. And that's what the Lord is doing here. He's doing soul surgery. It's long overdue. But there are two principles here that are closely related, and I give them to you. The first one is that we are never more than who we are before the all-seeing gaze of the all-knowing God. The Lord is never impressed by our inflation We are never more than who we are before the all-seeing gaze of the all-knowing God. Peter's strategy is one that many use. He, He believes that time will heal things. He'll just jolly Jesus along. Jesus and me, Jesus and the boys, we'll crack a few funnies, we'll get on, because eventually it'll be too embarrassing for the Lord to confront my inner reality, the shadow side. So we'll just keep it light. Discipleship light. That's Peter's approach. But he forgets that for the Lord, the third principle of discipleship is that what we are becoming is far more important to him than all we'll ever achieve for him. He can redeem his world without us. He just decides to write us into his script. But what we are becoming is more important to him than all we will ever achieve for him. In fact, that is his mission goal, that if we serve him, it's to change us, (laughs) to make us more like him. And that's why that's worth the pain here. Sometimes to get close to the Lord is to get uncomfortable and to feel pain. The Apostle Paul puts it so well. He talks of two sorts of depression that people can have. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, Godly grief produces sorrow. It does produce sorrow, but with no regret. Worldly grief produces death. So that's the Lord is not just about bringing people down. He's about finding that burr in the saddle and making sure we don't go back there again. Godly grief produces sorrow with no regrets. Worldly grief produces death. See, the Lord is not interested in relating to our constructions of ourselves. The Lord is not interested in relating, having a relationship with who we wish we were. The Lord, if he sees a raised arm keeping him at a distance, he just pushes that aside and barges straight through. The extrovert has not got a defence and conviviality that the Lord is interested in. 
the introverts of us may use different approaches. We tend to internalise our penances. We tend to punish ourselves. We tend to get scrupulous and make sure we don't trot on the lines of holiness and we balk at shadows and mere peccadilloes and we fault find, especially with others. And then we read those inner signals and when our conscience is not panging, we presume that we can then enter the Holy of Holies. But you see, both the extroverted approach and the internalised penance approach, I call them out-of-tent, out-of-tent solutions. They're like the tabernacle where we fall around in the foyer when the Lord would want us to come into, through his bloodshed, into the Holy of Holies. That's the meaning of the Gospel. That we can mix with the Holy God fearlessly. But he'll want to talk about the games we play. He'll want to remove the burr from the saddle. He wants to actually create people who are consistent. That is the power. We know that we have the right to approach God because of the objective work of the blood of Christ. But you see, it's the subjective cleansing of the blood of Christ that permits you to be free of a seared conscience. This power of the blood of Christ cleanses our consciences in a way the blood of bulls and goats never could. So we can stand and we can eyeball the Lord and we can dialogue about how we really are. That's the Christian experience of grace. But right then, the Lord continues his conversation with Peter and, and he gets on to the second part of Peter's wild boast which was that he would die for him and he says basically he's saying, you know Pete, funny you should say that. But uh, that's exactly what your lot will be. You're going to follow my path and uh, you know, when you're a bit long in the tooth your story is going to be cut short and just like me and history records this is exactly what happened. You're going to be stretched out. You're going to be arrested and you're going to be raised, taken to places you'd rather not think about. But that's your lot. And the Lord is telling Peter this, not to make him miserable, but so that there'll be no surprises in the future. He's giving him advance warning that when these things happen, God's plan is not off the rails. All you've got to do, Peter, is follow me. Finish this course. It's a course that I have for you. Follow me. That's the job. That's your assignment. And Peter says, noticing that John is getting a little curious and is starting to drift away from the pack and is tacking along like a little shadow behind them, he goes, well, what about this guy? Now, Peter is not interested in John's well-being and we can tell that by the Lord's response. Jesus says, basically, Peter, that's none of your business. And he gives him a verbal slap over the wrist. None of your business, Pete. You've got your marching orders. And, and look, if it's, it's my business. If, if he lasts until the second coming, uh, you know, if Jesus is speaking hyperbolically, 
If, if he lasts until the second coming, that's still none of your business. You, you've got your orders and you've got to complete your assignment. You see, what we've got to realise here is that Peter is still unregenerate. He is not a saved man. He's just a Jewish disciple. Pentecost has not happened. The spirit has not been poured out. He has not been transformed from the inside out. And so Peter's motivational centre is still governed by what he grew up with, by his culture. He's a typical male of his culture or even of Roman culture. The whole idea of being a male is to, to have the respect of your peers and to actually be doing a little bit better than them. And ideally, you'll have the luck of life and, and you'll be the envy of your peers. And, and Peter runs off that soul food. And this is what the Lord is trying to wean him off. You see, the Lord is concerned that if Peter isn't changed then that cultural value system that made the Roman Empire stand up, and it works, that, that that same value system will then be just laminated over and will become the Christian value system, where everyone's got to have their little five minutes of fame and be, be recognised and they drink off that and to think that other people think that I'm important is soul food, but it doesn't satisfy. You know... There's a lot of that going around. There's a particular group in our society that are particularly afflicted by that motivational core. We have a special name for them. We call them pastors. And I've been surprised in the many years that I've worked in training pastors how many people are motivated by ego. And it's a very different thing to what Jesus... Jesus does not want the motivational core of his church to be the resentment of others. That'll lead us in pathways and directions which have nothing to do with the assignment that he has given us. I can remember years ago being invited to do a, a, a nice little um, conference thing up at Morling College, the Baptist College in uh, New South Wales. And um, I can remember uh, coming to a group session where we had a bunch of very willing and able pastors. They're all fellas. And uh, they're all sitting uh, sort of in a circle. I think there was a big table there. I'm not sure we were sitting around it, but it was a big conference room. And about 12 or 15 people. I didn't know them from a bar of soap. Um, you know, and uh, I, I just thought it would be better before we leap in here to uh, just, why don't we just introduce ourselves, you know, say where you're from, what church you work in, a little bit about yourself if you've got to get it off your chest, you know. And uh, I made a mistake of turning to the closest pastor. I can still remember he was dressed in this very nice sort of seal skin jacket. And, uh, you know, he had a fair bit of uh, bling coming out of his ear. and uh, He was, you know, a hairstyle I'd die for. And... Uh, he, he said, I said, where are you from, bro? And he said, well, I'm pastor such and such from, you know, Ben-Hur Baptist, um, cast of thousands, you know. And uh, he, uh, he then started to talk about, you know, all the different staff they had and the vacancies they had and this sort of thing. And I'm going, my goodness, should I be... <laughs> and, uh, but what happened next is what saddened me is that the next guy to him 
started to share his bit. We moved on. And the next pastor said, you know, I'm Pastor Bob from Bogabilla West Baptist. And, uh, you know, we've got about 39 people. And, uh, but we're growing. You see, he felt inferior. Now, how can anyone feel inferior when they are fulfilling the assignment that Jesus Christ of heaven has given them on earth? How can you be doing anything better than following him? There is no improvement on that. It doesn't get better than that. And around the circle they went, apologetically, comparatively, playing the game that is ingrained in Peter. That Jesus wanted to root out of the church and it's still with us. And it brings us to this principle, which I hope you can remember, especially if you end up in this sort of ministry rather than the one you are already called to. And this is the principle that service is a sovereign trust, not a measure of your significance. Service is a trust invested in you by the Lord, in his great wisdom, in the perfect of plans. For you to fulfill. It's not a measure of your significance. It has no implication for your holiness or your stature in heaven. You know, when we get to heaven, some of the guys with the leather jackets will be playing with the pots and pans on the floor of the kitchen. When the Bogabilla Baptist guy could well be governing universes. Who knows? You can't make the inference. Sovereign service is a sovereign trust, not a measure of significance. The issue which they'll ask about when we get to heaven is not whether you completed someone else's assignment, but whether you completed yours. That's what they will assess you on. And your assignment could be to be faithful for many years until your next door neighbour receives Jesus Christ. If that's the burning passion that he's placed in your heart, then you do that with all your strength. When you've done that, another assignment would be placed upon you. But that's the nature of the Christian life. And you can see why Jesus puts this barbecue story at the end of the Gospel of Gospels. It's because we can easily think it's a closed chapter when it's an open chapter. And we are living in the open chapter, folks. And you folks, you are either going to live these principles or you're going to follow fame. You're going to fake it till you make it. And then what? I appreciate this little episode. I hope you do too. As we back away, as the, as the drone lifts and we look at this scene, I just am amazed for what this says about the nature, the inner core of the Lord who calls us to follow him. That this is the one you'd think he'd have better things to do. This is the one who has defeated sin. That's something to be proud of. This is the one who has stared down Satan and won. That's something to be proud of. This is the one who has defeated the law and brought in the new teaching of the gospel. 
That's an achievement. This is the one who by all rights should be basking in the glorious reputation that is his due in heaven where the music's great and everyone just cannot stop singing his praises. But he has unfinished business. And that is that he's one of his mates is a silly suffering soul that needn't suffer but needs to be relieved from his self-imposed torment. And that matters to Jesus. The rest, heaven can wait. That's the Lord we worship. So I'm just trying to say to you tonight that his strategy is the same with us. It's not that he's going to take us to barbecues around beaches all around Melbourne. His strategy is that he will not let us rest when there's a burr in our saddle. He will bring us to that point where we will say, Lord, you know. That's the prayer he wants to hear. You know. And then he can talk strategies. And he can change your soul food. And right at that minute, you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, get back in the game. Don't bench yourself. Back in the game. Maybe he's saying that to you tonight. Let's pray. Our dear Lord Jesus, we thank you, Father, for revealing the very heart of God through this seemingly innocuous episode at the end of your great gospel of signs. Lord, we only have such a short time here. Life just flies and goes. And we want to be able to stand with this company, but in the greater company of heaven one day. And to be able to look you in the eye, upright, not cringing, up to you to say, Lord, this is what you gave our hands to do and this is what indeed we have accomplished. Ask whatever you will of us, Lord. You have our hearts, you have our minds, you have our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.